This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. Abby Morgan is one of the most prolific and celebrated dramatists of her generation. While she's reached international acclaim for her television and film work, she began her trade in the theatre and has, over the course of the past two decades, made plays of formal confidence, emotional incision and daring theatricality. There are a few screenwriters to have emerged in the UK this century of such importance. BAFTA and Emmy award-winning work includes the television drama Sex Trafficked, a single film that launched her screen career. White Girl Tsunami and the Royal Wedding followed. Her work reached its highest range with the multi-award-winning series The Hour at the Turn of the Last Decade. For cinema, she has written about sex addicts and neoliberal tyrants alike in Shame and The Iron Lady. She was born into a family which was almost the stereotype of a theatrical family. Her father, Gareth Morgan, was the artistic director of the Gulbenkian Theatre in Newcastle, now Northern Stage, and her mother, Pat England, was a successful repertory actor. She made a debut writing for the stage with Skinned at Nuffield Theatre Southampton in 1998. Fast Food at the Manchester Royal Exchange Studio in 99 was followed by Splendour for Payne's Plough in 2000. Splendour revived at the Donmar Warehouse in 2015. 2001's Tiny Dynamite saw the start of a collaboration with Frantic Assembly that has graced both her career and the life of that company, while that year's tender at the Hampstead Theatre earned her a nomination for Most Promising Playwright. Her most recent collaboration with Frantic Assembly Love Song opened in 2011 at the Plymouth Drum before touring internationally with that company. She made her Royal Court debut at the opening season of Vicky Featherston's artistic directorship with her sharp study of sexual mores, The Mistress Contract, in 2014. Adapted from an anonymously published set of recorded conversations between a couple in the throes of a decade-long affair, it bore many of the hallmarks of Morgan's stage writing. A dramatisation drawn from an actual event, it was formally searching and unflinching in its examination of sexuality and sexual politics. It placed the vicissitudes of identity and empowerment against the complicated backdrop of human relationships. In an Abby Morgan drama, the humanity and the disempowering nature of ideological structures are in a dance of constant tension with one another. Abby Morgan, welcome to the Royal Court. Wow, (laughs) she sounds amazing. She's pretty impressive. She's like great. I really like her. She's like, she definitely should get an Oscar next. Definitely an Oscar and possibly an Olivier. In fact, actually it says somewhere that I won an Olivier award and I'm so embarrassed because I've never corrected it. Do you know, because what's interesting about that is I was on the same shortlist for the most promising playwright. Does it piss you off when you see I've won? Because I didn't. No, No, it doesn't. But what it kind of makes me, uh, at the time I was slightly kind of irritated, but uh, subsequently kind of feel quite sorry for the guy who did win. 
I know. It was Grey Clue. Oh, I'm so it's, sorry, I Grey. know. It's quite, he's, I'm so sorry. He's not written anything. Oh, do you know what? It's coming. It's coming. I hope so. He's probably writing like, about a really... I really like Grey, and I quite like fucking fascist games. Fascist female writer that he's determined <laughs> to bring down. Anyway. I hope he's all right. I hope he's well. Yeah. He, uh, it's really nice to have you here. Lovely to really be nice here. Really nice to have you in the Royal Court. Um, uh, I always start these interviews by asking... Uh, people this very same question and I'm really interested in your answer to this because of the nature of your family which is when was the first time that you went to the theatre? God, I mean I could be whimsical about it and mythologise and say I remember when I was a baby but the truth is it probably was when I was incredibly young it was before I was it was definitely a non-verbal period because my dad ran what is the Gold Bank and Theatre then was the Tyneside Theatre Company. So mm-hmm. just to. But, um, is that, that's not Northern Stage then? No, it's oh, not. Right, it's that's pre an that. Error in so my that, that ran that. I mean, that, that theatre was originally the Tyneside Theatre Company. And right, he ran okay. that and through till about 1977. And so I spent the first decade of my life in Newcastle upon Tyne. So. Um, right. And certainly my mum was an actress. So it was, yeah. it was just the kind of. My earliest memory probably of going to the theatre was definitely when I must have been about four or five and what was amazing at the theatre at that time was that the matinees before the matinees there was a live band in the bar and I remember me and my brother eating salt and shake crisps and a bottle of coke Mm. and and it just seemed like the height of glamour to me you know (laughs) so those are the memories and I remember you know auditions and still the smell of MDF and glue guns wow. I just I still love it because it's it's the memory of my childhood but there is also the the death of magic because you know I remember going to see Alice in Wonderland a production my dad did and you know um and they were paint I saw them you know I saw how they made the the red roses turn from red to white to red and I realized it was just you know it was a, ro- a piece of string behind a piece of flatboard and that definitely you know from a young age I think those were the memories that were like oh okay that's how it all works so <laughs> The mechanics of those that playwriting was probably witnessed from a very young age, yeah. Do you remember any particular shows that you have a more conscious memory of watching? Yeah, I mean, I remember... Well, I'm, you know, interesting, I was, in, I was in a couple of my dad's plays. Were so you? Yeah, my dad did a production of uh, Comus, uh, Milton's Comus, with um, Suzanne Burtish and Alan Howard when I was... I must have been about seven six seven wow. and my brother my sister and my, my my brother and sister we were all in it and we learned how to dance and I'm I have no concept of left and right and I remember I had I had tape on my shoes to show my left and right and we did whatever you know 18th century dancing so I remember that and I, I you know and 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 in fact Francis Tamelty was um had a little boy at the time had a baby because it was when Sting was in the band you know who's now he was in the band. He played in the band at Newcastle upon Tyne, and so oh my god, and he was called Sting because he had a red and black, uh, red and yellow jumper. So I remember that being a really. Yeah, is that why Sting is called Sting? Yeah, <laughs> and um, and so I remember that being sort of. Me- but you know, part of that is shadowy because you think, are they your memories? Are they? Yeah. But yeah, she was, and so she looked after us. I remember she was the kind of backstage sort of nanny at the time because I think she was around. So, so it's funny, isn't it? Those sort of. Very. That was my earliest memory, and the, and I do remember going. To, I remember very specifically going to the design meeting with my dad for that, and seeing wow. the um, the set, and it was involved some swan coming out from the grounds, and so that was always incredibly magical to me. Theatre's always been magical, and I do love sitting in that in the stages before an audience arrives. I love text yeah. rehearsals. I, you know, I think 
I think it's amazing because suddenly the response—it's the shift of responsibility has gone from you then. Because when they're teching, you kind of go, "Well, they're not—you're not going to have to rewrite after that." So. There's a, there's a, I mean, the, the, the beauty of the technical rehearsal goes mm. right back to what you're talking about—that pre-conscious memory. Yeah. For me, I always find it really moving. Yeah, I can that there are that. so many people who are involved in re in, in trying to realise something that I've imagined in my head. Yeah, and that's raw. Yeah, but, you know, I think the, I think. What you're always trying to do as a writer is hold on to that raw thing yeah. and somehow by osmosis it, it's, it let it stay and breathe. And I think in the tech is when you start to realise that everybody's committing to that same thing. You know, And I mean that raw thing, I mean a live thing that when you were writing you felt. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you felt it as you wrote it. Exactly. You know? Um, and then, and then that's crystallised in the moment of turning the changing the colours of the flowers. Yeah, you kind of realise the rawness of that yeah. as well as the technique yeah. of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then, and there is, you know, uh, there, you know, that old-fashioned idea of theatre folk is an incredible thing because yeah. I think, you know, I, what I love in in theatre is there is a kind of weird democracy in it. Because, you know, the stage management are doing their part, the actors are doing their part, the yeah. director's doing their part, but afterward everyone gets pissed in the bar. And there is something <laughs> wonderful about that. There is something wonderful about yeah. a community that comes together that's made this fragile thing so, um, and that they have the energy to keep going after, you know, after 11 o'clock at night. You know, when everybody goes to bed, yeah. they're still up and alive. So the, um, I mean, some people born into theatre folk. Mm. I know Marianne Elliott, who I've worked mm. with several times, I'm really mm. close to, her dad was a theatre yeah, director. Michael Elliott, yeah. Yeah, her mum was an actress yeah. and still is an actress. Yeah. For a long time, she really resisted the theatre. She tried to do any job she possibly could apart yeah. from work in theatre. Well, Did you have the same thing? Or um, I think I, I resisted acting. You know, right. I think my you know my sister's um, was an actress for a long time. My mother obviously was an actress. My, you know, both my sister and I live with actors, and so <laughs> I think my fight was not to become an actor, particularly because I was genuinely not very good. And I still find the ability to transform into something other uh, was excruciating for me. So when I went to do, it, I did an English and drama degree, and yeah. I had to act a bit on that and. My first job was acting, and that was something I was incredibly resistant to. I couldn't... I felt very self-conscious. I'm the most self-conscious dancer, for example, and that relates right back to the feeling I feel about acting, which is I can't bear carrying the responsibility in that moment of the play, and I can't bear all those people watching me. And so I think that was something that I was very resistant to. And so for me, writing was a, a place of empowerment because I was left alone in a room. When did you start writing? When do you remember kind of writing for fun? Is it a very early thing for no, you? No, not at all. I mean, I remember writing a truly terrible uh, poem when I was about 15, and the one the one line I keep going around in my head, it's called Carousel. Oh, it's and I remember a beautiful there was a line name. which said... <laughs> yeah, beautiful name. And there was a line that said... He scarred, masked, marred, trespassed. I remember that. Wow! Well. Good, wasn't it? Yeah. Not even. <laughs> didn't even. Didn't even have a rhythm. It's not too late to use no, it somewhere. No. But <laughs> I, yeah, and I remember doing writing one poem, and I remember writing one story. But I was very unacademic, and I also went to. Where did you go to school? What kind of? I went to. Um, I went to nine schools. So oh, I travelled around a lot. And, I, you know, those go right back to, you know, that first nursery and that. But I went to um, four primary schools and I went to one, two, three secondary schools and then a couple of, like, pre-nurseries. So, yeah, I went to probably seven schools and a couple of nurseries, yeah. So Do I you... moved around a lot. But, but my main sort of formative education in terms of... I spent a long time then... Um, I spent about four or five years in Stoke-on-Trent. 
during my teens because my mum w- had got a job right. at the Victoria Theatre, which yep. now is known as the New Victoria Theatre. And so she got consistently five years' work in rep there right. because Peter Cheeseman, who ran it, yeah. was a really old friend and she'd started out with him at the Stephen Joseph Theatre. So, um, And so we often moved around theatres. So, you know, I moved to Stratford-upon-Avon for three years. Wow. You know, I was in Wales for a while because my dad ran the Welsh Theatre Company when I, that was where I was born. And so, so, yeah, we just moved around. And is there a... Do you think this is an entirely specious or speculative rather than specious question, an entirely speculative question, is there a relationship between the type of reinvention that goes to going to nine different schools yeah. and, the pro, and the invention involved in writing yeah. or imagining? Uh, I or? think that when... I mean, you know, you said, when did I know... Yeah. That, when did I... Did I write prolifically from a young age? I didn't write, but I told lies. I was a really... <laughs> and, I, you know, to this day, I still work really hard to tell the truth. You know, so, you know, I, I work really hard not to elaborate. I work really hard not to go, you know, the, cl- the classic is, you know, my, my partner might go, great dress. And I'll go, I know, I know, I got it. I got it for 20 quid. And it was like 40 quid. You know, I always have to bring the price down. And yeah. I ju- so I watch those little lies of myself because, you know, when I was in my teens and late, I got undone by them, you know. So and certainly, you know, my, my dad, you know, my dad was a policeman and we had a German shepherd dog. dog. And I remember that and was one that, yeah, and it preyed on my mind for months. How was I going to get, what are we going to do? How are they going to find me out? So, but I, but I love the you kick of... steal yeah, a German shepherd yeah, dog. Steal a, yeah, and so it went on, and that was how my criminal career started. Um, no, I, I, I think I... Yeah, I story-told, and I knew the impact of telling a dramatic story, and I knew that drama would come from saying the cats died, and everybody right. would listen, or... Right. You know, but what, what was funny retrospectively, and I think what you learn as you grow up, is I think, God, there was such drama actually going on in my family life, and my... And I would never... Mm. I would never go... Uh, because it would mean, mean nothing to my friends, you know, I'd never go, oh, we spent the weekend with Alan Lateborn. I would go, you know, or, you know, I would never have the bit, you know, or there would be a famous actor and I would never reference them. I'd never do the things that kids would do, you know, yeah. or I'd, because, you know, yeah. invariably I think there is, you're an interloper if you're in the creative industry and you interlope into incredible lives. So often you, you know, people who weren't famous become famous, playwrights who weren't known yeah. become known. Yeah. And you get a chance to see in that world yes. and then you come away from it. And I didn't ever elaborate about those. I, elabor- I often elaborated about normal things. I often created, you know, normal. And so I think my storytelling came from that and I didn't really... I honestly wrote my first thing proper when I was at university. Which was Exeter University. Exeter University, and we were asked to do a monologue, which we performed. Was the name of the teacher? Was it the same guy who taught David Eldridge? Yeah, it was Pete Thompson. Yeah, that's right. Pete Thompson, yeah, he was a very inspirational... David really reveres him. Yeah, yeah. he's a wonderful... He he is a wonderful man. He was a Shakespearean academic um, and a genuinely lovely person, and... I think at the time the extra drama department was very well known for actually nurturing, creating um, film uh, theatre makers. Right. And so yeah. um, I may be wrong, but I think people like Headlong have come from there, or certainly they've. Right. So I think some yeah. of that work has come from there. And at the time it was Theatre Alibi, which was a great sort of touring theatre company. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, David Eldridge, yeah. Lucy Davis. Right. It was right, there. Right, right. Um, uh, Rebecca Pritchard was a great writer who came out of that. So there's, you know, there's been, there have been some, some great writers. And I think it was because one of the things they worked on with these, this building towards in your third year, this thing called practical essays, right. which was, was a sort of way you made a piece of theatre that you could write or perform or make in some ways. So and that was your monologue. My my monologue was just pre that. I wrote right. a monologue. It was complete Alan Bennett ripoff, but I realised I'd never truly fitted. 
in in that in that department because I wasn't academic, I wasn't an actor. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. Every day you had to put on your gi, which was like a black karate suit. It was very sort of seventies. <laughs> I can't bear massage to this day. I get I get nervous when anybody gives me a massage as a gift. You know. Yeah. And um, I didn't really fit, and and suddenly I wrote something, and I heard that thing, which, you know, I don't. I'm sure it wasn't for the whole, you know, whatever it was, 15 minute monologue. Yeah. But what I heard in moments was I heard silence and an audience listening, and it was revelatory. And for the first time, people came up and went, oh, I enjoyed that. I was okay, yeah. and I had never experienced that ever in my life. I had suddenly found something um, that I could do, and also the great joy, you know. I I'd sud- I got an Amstrad computer. Suddenly there was a thing called Spellcheck, and I had a grammar th- thing, and it could order my words. And so suddenly I could yeah. write on a typewriter. So, you know, the, I started out writing on a typewriter, actually, but I went on to an Amstrad. So that was revelatory for me as well. I started writing on a typewriter as well. And the physicality of that is quite interesting. Yeah, I still... It? Well, aren't they... Although don't they rewrites do... are a bugger. Yeah, they are. They're a bugger. But, but in a weird way, I'm in, you know, I remember rewriting and rewriting the first page of a play because of that, because you could sort of... There was, it was a very visceral thing of pulling out paper, you know, yeah. the kind of old-fashioned, you know, stop stop the front page, you know. It was that... It was those sort of... Uh, it was that mechanism. So tell me about what... So what... You did the monologue and it yeah. was performed at Exeter. Yeah. And you heard that beautiful silence mm. that you talk about. Mm. Um, and it, it was that that propelled you to write more. Yeah, it, yeah? Really, it was. And I, I went on to do this practical essay where I wrote another piece. And I remember um, one of the students coming up to me, a much older student who I kind of revered, and he went, I really like your thing. I really like what you wrote. And again, mm. I was in, you know, over the moon. Mm. Somebody had sort of noticed. And, uh, and I went on then to do... I wrote with another uh, fellow student for we wrote a play for the local water authority called dick dipper's special agent and it was some it was something and nothing but it made 50 quid every time it was performed and so i i kind of got a tiny little bit of money out of that fantastic and from that i started to i spent have you still got it probably have somewhere probably on an abstract somewhere um they should revive it the water they should, authority I know, should it's revive amazing. it they I knew they had abby walkins debut play i can't remember anything about much about that but um <laughs> But I did that, and then I did a, spent a year, ironically, working as a sort of th- actress in education, theatre in education, because I got a job right. touring across sort of Europe doing with a company called Big Wheel, which was which was a fun company that sort of did Shakespeare for in schools, and I had a great time across Europe. Across Europe, so wow. we all yeah we went all you know Holland, Denmark, Belgium. It's not a you bad know, thing Northern to do Europe, in your really. 20s, yeah, it was it? really it's fun for my first job. But but out of that, I remember sitting with um, an actress, and I was like, I'm in such a bad mood. And I remember her saying, "It's because you're not writing." And I think I thought that was really odd. I think it's very odd. And actually, I know now that when I get very touchy, it's because what I really need to do is sit back down and write. And it's where definitely it became this place where I sort of stilled the demons, and I still find that to this day. You know, when things get a bit bit heady and giddy and maybe you, you're publicising a movie or maybe yeah. you're, you know, it's it's you're leading up to it. You, you've had a press night and for a while you're like, well, I'm going to take the day off. I'm going to... It, very quickly the battery runs down and yeah. I need to get back and sit back down and write yeah. because it definitely calms me. And so I, I, through that period, I wrote a play. I went, I did a year at, at a, at the time, a not very good course at Central School of Speech and Drama, mm-hmm. but... Stephen Jeffries read a play of mine and encouraged me, and from that I wrote my first play, which got picked up through a competition. One of the one of my favourite things about doing these things is that there are figures who recur, yeah. 
who are important figures and not necessarily as celebrated outside of the world of writing no. or playwriting as they as they no. ought to be. And Stephen Jeffries Phenomenal is, is definitely one of those. Yeah, and he, so, to, to talk a little bit about what he gave to well, you. Well, I tell what, you what, he, I mean, he talked a lot about structures, same time, same place, different time, different place. Yeah. You know, um, different place, same time. Same mm. time, different place. You know, he sort mm. of taught you very simple methodology, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Wow, that's fascinating!" And and at the, and and he was very generous, and he was he was at the time, you know, he was doing some really exciting work. You know, he was writing the Libertine, which was a phenomenal play, mm. um, and he was he was genuinely interested in the craft of writing, and he was very inspiring to the group. So I remember there was only six of us in that group, and we ended up in some very underprepared, um, you know carpetless back room in King's Cross at the time which was right. supposedly the new creative writing course and um, <laughs> and slowly but surely that there was a gradual mutiny of the students and I think there was only three of the six left by the end right. um, but he was terrific, that was a very good thing and then um, Jeremy Brock came in I remember and he was t- about he did a course on TV writing and I remember right. he encouraged us, he showed us how to write an outline for a TV show and I came up with an idea called On the Pull which was um, about a group, a dating agency for prison ex, ex-cons and it was where you went when you wanted to find love and you'd come out of prison and I came up with this idea and it was called On the Pull That's really great. and it was run it's by ex-cons yeah, it never got made but um, <laughs> I don't think I ever saw it but he, he said to me at that time you should write for television I remember thinking oh, at the time my dad was a TV director and you know right. to go back to that thing of resistance I was at the time like I'm not going to touch TV yeah. and at the time it was interesting because television um, was a little bit like, oh, that's so sweet, you do that thing called theatre writing. Right. And of course now, I think, you know, theatre's become so revered, it's, seen, it's become such yeah. an industry, you know, there's such a strong relationship between the commercial arm of theatre making and um, subsidised, and that's become bigger, and, you know, we've had, a, a, you know, great plays are now being properly and rightfully lauded, mm. and... Um, but at the time, it was it was a strange thing, so I, I, I carried on writing for theatre because I then started to meet the great directors who, who carried my work, really. How long did that take, then? From So the first professional production was at Nuffield, is that right? It was at Nuffield, yeah. and I think that I came out of university in 91, yeah. and I didn't start making proper money yeah. a, until 98, so it was seven years, and in that time I'd start... I think I won my... I think I, I, I was a runner-up in... A, Bush Theatre Prize, the Alec okay. Domic Prize, which right. I think was with Skinned, right. and so and then that got picked up and done by the Nuffield Theatre, right. yeah. and then from that I wrote another play called Fast Food, which Marion Elliott directed, Brilliant. and that was I think a competition play as well, and they took it on, and they the Royal Exchange took it on. When I think about my career, there was a similar gap between me graduating from university and the first professional production of about seven years. Yeah. It's something I often talk about to people who are starting writing. Yeah. Actually, for me, those seven years were the seven years that made me. Yeah. <laughs> when I was... would, and also, but I remember feeling, I think you, I remember the, the mantra I had was, when I get there, when I get there, when yeah. I get there. And I don't know what getting there was, mm. but actually, quite simply for me, it was being able to afford to live. Yeah. Because I was broke, I was in London, no one tells you. Were you doing other how... jobs? Were you kind of like yeah, doing I mean, I, the two things I did, I waitressed for an outside catering company um, called Party Ingredients, and uh, I used to get £22 a, a session, yeah. and so I would waitress all over the great kind of ironmongers, haberdashers hall, I would go and do these, either a lunchtime, it could be anything from a kind of dinner to a wedding to a or yeah. evening event, and 
but from that I met some incredible people so I met an amazing woman called Gabby Smith who's a fantastic film editor now yeah. I met an amazing artist called Helen Moira and they're two, still two of my closest friends and were they all doing they were all working in the same creative we were all waitress, well. and it was an incredible mix of creatives that yeah. we were all but we, the ridiculous thing is we would do these waitressing jobs we'd come out with our 22 quid and then we'd spend it on booze and chips you know? <laughs> and so then we it was a system we'd go back into it the next day but it gave me pockets and then the big thing that I got that really helped was I became a caretaker looking after empty buildings for, oh, P, for wow. BP and so, thank God, thank you, BP. You've done many bad things, but that was the one good thing you did. And I looked after a series of empty buildings. Yeah. So I looked after one in Golden Square. I looked after one Belgrave House opposite Victoria Station wow. for years. And it was basically me, the Irish security guard, and the Ghanaian cleaner in this whole building. And it meant that someone was there if any, you know, party of businessmen came in wanting to look for empty office space. Right. I was just there and I'd adjusted the newspapers before the uh, state agent came around to show them around. Wow. But the well, thing so that, you had a lot of time to... Well, the thing that was amazing was the yeah. head of the property department there, Juliet Fellows, knew that I wanted to write. And she went, I don't care what you do in your other hours. So I had a computer and I wrote. So I was able to write. And that, that sustained me for five years. It was a great thing. It was a great gift then. And, and there's, an ex, there's a kind of like an explosion of plays at the end of the 90s and the start of yeah. the noughts. Yes, and that, that comes down to Vicky Featherstone, actually. Tell me Payne's about that. Plow. Um, I, Lucy, well, a combination, actually, of the two greats of the Royal Court now, Lucy Davis and yeah. Vicky Featherstone. So Vicky had, and I cannot to this day remember how, but we, I, was, I came in to see Payne's Plow. I don't know, I think someone had read possibly fast food or skinned or one yeah. of those plays. Or probably both. Probably both. Yeah. And they invited me in. Yeah. And I started to talk to her about this idea I had and I said, well, I, you know, oh God, I don't know what I want to do at the moment but I have, you know, this idea and this idea. And she did a couple of things. She introduced me to Frantic Assembly. She was working with them. Mm. And so we worked on um, Tiny Dynamite. Yeah. And then, and I can't remember which came first, but then we also, I talked to her, said I want to do a play about four women on a border. Yeah. I just know they're on a border, I don't know what it is, and I want to set it over one night, and yeah. from that, Splendour came. And so I wrote Splendour for her. And she was phenomenal. I mean, it was the team at the time. At the time, it was Jessica Drumgruel and Vicky, and then subsequently Lucy Morrison came in. And um, I was just incredibly lucky to have these extraordinary women yeah. who absolutely believed in me. And made me laugh and they became you know certainly Lucy and you know and Vicky absolutely became dear friends yeah. and they just kept on being interested in what I was doing and saying that's great and they asked all these incredible questions and mm. and I went off and wrote and I came back and they said okay we're going to put it on and that for me was extraordinary it was just amazing and then at the same time extraordinary because of the gesture of faith or because suddenly I could it was a job. Yeah, I could right. I could call myself a writer. Right. You know, when we talk about those years, those seven yeah. years, you know, I was watching, I was watching friends become barristers and doctors and lawyers yeah, and um, get grown up jobs and get yeah. flats, and I was still, you know, you know, living on my own homemade hummus for a week, and <laughs> you know. Seriously considering some really inappropriate jobs because I'd heard the money was good and yeah. you know and thinking God what the hell am I doing I'm a charlatan this yeah. is not who I am and and it felt it felt very difficult it felt very hard and so suddenly having somebody say I'm going to pay you and I'm going to do a poster and it's going to have your name on it and guess what they're going to publish your play and no one tells you that that's the great joy you you end up at the end they give you a book 
and yeah. it's and it's down and it's solid and someone else w- might do that. Which was your first one? Which was your first published book? Was it? I think I think it was Skinned actually, yeah. which was right. And I remember it was you know before there was I even don't proper know skinned, covers. I'm embarrassed. I don't no, know well, skinned, well, fast skinned food. was fast food never got published because it was a really hard play to publish. It had four it had four scenes going on at the same time, and I never at that time knew how to lay it out. Alice Birch. You were, Alice, yeah, Alice, what Alice Birch did with Anatomy of a Suicide is the same yeah, thing. Yeah, okay. Have you, see, have you seen no, that? No, I've book? never seen how they lay that out. It's really great. You get it in the bookshop. It's oh, really, that's interesting. I will. I'll you try have and to do read it. it. You read it in uh, what's the opposite of? Um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of staggered wood. sort of. Uh, yeah, the opposite of landscape. You read it in portfolio. No, yeah, portfolio. That. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You flip the book round and read it long. Oh words. my god, I'd love yeah, to do that. Well, really, I'll definitely really have great. a look at it. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Skinned, I think, was the first one. Yeah. Uh, skinned was skinned was about. Um, it came out of being in in Exeter, and it turned out that at the time Stoke on Trent and Ex- Stoke on Trent, my the hometown, yeah. and Exeter, both had the highest selling. Um, um, rate public of the publication the flag which was the far right magazine at the time and so i wrote a piece about a racist killing set in an abattoir in um somewhere in that i can't even remember where i set it now that's how long ago it was and it was about a racist killing and it was about a community having to acknowledge a racist killing within their midst <laughs> have you reread it no i haven't i wonder what i'd think of it now <laughs> i mean i remember very clearly I wrote a monologue, and I always remember Stephen Jeffries saying, you really have to earn your monologues. But I never have a monologue on the first page. Burn This, I would say, was a very good monologue, also on the first page. Good. But anyway. Um, yeah, but, um, or The Libertine had a monologue Lib- uh, on the yeah. first page. Yeah. So, yeah, go, box his own system. But um, it was, yeah, so I remember writing this monologue and the revelation when I moved into television writing was that I didn't need a monologue anymore because... I could counterpoint dialogue with image. Right. And I was often conjuring up images through my monologues. And so that was a bit of a revelation to me. So that was what I remember about that first play. Just tell me a little bit more what you mean about that, because I find that really fascinating. So the monologue was describing an image. Yeah, and it was often evocative, and it was often about, as well as describing a sort of transition or a movement of emotional state for that character, it was often... So, for example, one of the characters was describing coming in... The, ab- the the young man who'd been killed was a young Asian man who had been killed. He'd been found dead in the abattoir. And it was who who had killed him in the community. Yeah. And it turns out that... Sorry, spoiler here. But the young girl, one of the reasons why he was killed was that he'd started a relationship with a young white girl who also worked at the abattoir. Right. And so it was a kind of... It was a kind of... Um, it was both a racist killing and a, a kind of passion killing. Mm-hmm. And she described watching this boy swing on the chains in the avatar. He was an amazing athlete. And she described what it was like watching him do sort of circles on these chains. Mm-hmm. And, a, and the discovery in film was I could show that. I mean, I could have actually done that Lovely. at theatre, but at the time yeah. he was not a character who was in the play. And so I didn't bring him on. And I was thinking, well, we don't have an extra X to bring that actor on or yeah. play that actor. But at the time... I then and and I love you know I love very lean dialogue actually, mm-hmm. but I filled my theatre play with language. I found language is starting to creep much more into my TV work now as well. But suddenly I could find a lean. I could put lean dialogue, but I could have metaphors. So I in 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 
TV writing, I suddenly could do something like a dangerous situation. I could have somebody drinking a swig of Coke and a wasp was circulating close to the Coke can. Or, you know, I could suddenly hone in and put the camera in in a way that I think I was doing with my writing. And so that was a bit of a move for me. And, and so at the time when I, I then started to write from theatre, um, I had written a play... And it was either Skinned or Fast Food, I can't remember which one yeah. at the time, but certainly Lucy um, Davis was at the time working in the Donmar Warehouse. Right. And had said, it's not for Sam, but there is a Carton screenwriting course, which is two weekends set over six months, and in between you write a screenplay. And I wrote my first screenplay at the same time, and so I suddenly found this other sort of tranche of writing. You've got these two, right from Exeter, from yeah. the description of your time at Exeter, you've got these two kind of like roads ahead of you, writing for screen and writing, yeah. for, writing for stage, yeah. writing visually and writing linguistically. Yeah. The, I want to, I will talk about screenwriting. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just want to park it briefly yeah. and talk a little bit of, because I'm fascinated by the counterpoint of image and text that you talk about yeah. and the impact of frantic assembly on that. And Huge. Frantic for me, yeah. assembly. Uh, I'm sure people will know is is the leading kind of physical theatre yeah. company in the UK for yeah. the last kind of 20 years. Wonderful. Everybody knows them because their their schoolwork is so prominent that yes. most school kids have done like a term on Frantic Assembly. What was your experience of working with with them? Well, I think I think what was extraordinary, I mean Vicky introduced me to Frantic. I'd got to know them first because they came in, you know, in terms of uh, their choreography work and their yeah. movement work within plays. So, and I met Scott Graham and Stephen Hoggett and if you ever meet those two men then what you meet is huge heart. Mm. And they're, you know, beautiful beautiful men in this industry. And you know, actually what's what's extraordinary about Frantic Assembly and is to be remembered is yes they are known for going to schools but what they're also should be lauded for is creating a generation of young audience members who then yeah. from that yes. are introduced to theatre extraordinary theatre and that radiates out so yeah. if you ever go to a Frantic Assembly show it's you sit and you see teenagers watching plays yeah. and coming together in gangs yeah. and that's amazing so you suddenly think right this not on school trips <laughs> no, of their own accord come of their own volition yeah, and you know there's some of the most passionate audience I think I've ever met so yeah. and they taught me you know they were they're very filmic actually in many ways mm -hmm. in a weird way so they taught me when you open a fridge someone can come out of it and they taught me that <laughs> when I would say you know I really want to do a love scene but what I want is that halfway through the love scene the old couple become the young couple and they showed me that if you put a slit in a bed somebody can crawl out and effortlessly go in and the old you know the young woman has become an old woman yeah. and so they bought magic again and they they for me they 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 sort of filled that gap between a kind of magical realism which i feel like actually i don't always show in my film work but i i set up for a director to find yeah. so it can be the kind of it can be the metaphor that becomes the organizing principle of a film for example so it can be, you know, it can be the guy running, continually running on the subway in shame. Probably starts from, a, yeah. and that comes right back for me. They taught me that. They taught me the power of the theatrical image to kind of house, uh, uh, house the essence of what the play was about. You know, and so I think what you know, I started out doing. Um, interestingly, actually, we started out doing a comic. We did Tiny Dynamite yeah. with them, which is a very is probably one of my favourite plays actually, but it's a fragile little piece. It's mm -hmm. about it's a very simple piece about a friendship between two men, yeah. and um, them the 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 arrival of a young woman into this friendship and how it triggers memories and and of of a, a relationship that they have had in the past and how that's constantly affected them and brought them to this place today. And it was set 
uh, in a kind of um, East Coast town in America, and part of the reason why I set it in that, although I've made them English, I didn't, was that I had spent a summer teaching swimming in an East Coast town in America, and so I kind of loved the evocative nights of lakes and woods and, you know, the sound of crickets, and mm. and so that that then you know, went into the sound of electricity and pylons and they created this incredible sort of uh, imaginative riff. I think, I think you know, what, what, what I feel about great creative people and they're often the great, the people behind the writers, behind the actors, even, and I suppose I'm talking about directors really, mm-hmm. is that they open up your mind and they let you riff and they let you free fall and, that, and, the, and yet at the same time they utterly hold you and I think that's what... Vicky Featherstone did and Payne's Plown did for me and that's what Scott and Scoot Stephen did and Frantic did was that they just went, you're brilliant, you're brilliant, you're brilliant. And most writers, you know, it's funny, yeah. I just got a set of notes from um, from a some film producers in Hollywood and I just read the notes and I know for a fact that they loved the script but nowhere in these notes has anybody started by going we are we love this script so important isn't it's it it's so important because basically what that does is it goes ping and the door opens yeah and then if you don't say that first a writer will keep the door closed yeah it's I, very hard to open the door i, I recognize that in my muscle mm. memory as you're talking about it i've mm. not done film work really but working with theater mm. producers mm. If they just tell me that it's not shit. Yeah. Yeah, most of us, because we know it's shit. You know, yeah, in our heart of heart, you know, we, there will yeah. be something, you know, you may have created amidst there, there might be something wonderful, but all we ever really see is the crap. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and, and I think no one tells you, you know, I remember having, when I had my first child, I remember thinking, nobody tells you that you take the most vulnerable part of yourself and you give it legs. That is what having a child for me is. As I have taken absolutely the core, the thing that is the most important thing to me, my absolute heart, and I've given it legs and I've sent it out into the world. Yeah. And in a weird way, the precursor to that was plays. Yeah. You know, no, but your heart is in there somewhere. Yes. And I say this to all critics listening, you yeah. know, it's, it's an act of faith. It's also a huge privilege. So it's never that I think we should be lauded for it, but there is heart there. And, I, and the plays that have heart... However bad I may think, I can still feel it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. the plays that get lauded, I will still sometimes be looking for the heart. Yeah, you know, exactly. so it's not. Um, it's a. It's it's something that I never want to lose, and I do lose it sometimes because I think the older you get, you learn craft, and you learn how to simulate it. And I, at the end, I'll go. This is a really well structured script, and there's no. My heart's nowhere near it. It's going back to that kind of the dichotomy of the flower changing yeah. colour again. Yeah. You kind of you get yeah. the technique to be able to reveal yeah. it, but where's the totally. impulse to create the magic? Totally, totally, totally. So when so the first screen work for you? Yeah. Uh, is, is my kind of like chronology as aped from the internet? Was it sex trafficked? Was that the first <laughs> one that was produced? Ah, I think you're forgetting my great work on Pete Practice. Oh, uh, my oh truly... no, but that's important. Talk well, about that. I did, well, you and know, don't I, what, what, okay, so what film? did for me, what television yeah. and film did for me at the beginning was it um, it gave me proper income because at the time um, you still didn't get very much for a theatre commission no. I think it was three grand if right. that and I mean that that was a lot more then but it was still not a huge amount of money yeah. um, and so I out of the carton screenwriting actually I did this carton screenwriting course mm-hmm. around the same time and I got my first commission from the BBC which was a 500-page treatment um, 
A 500 page Not 500, sorry, 500 quid treatment. Right. Sorry. <laughs> 500 say, quid that's treatment. a novel. No, yeah. 500 quid <laughs> yeah. treatment is amazing. It's I, quite a big novel uh, as well. Became, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Booker Prize winner. And um, <laughs> I, yeah, I got 500 quid to write a treatment yeah. on a, about a, a, a drama series about the lives of Victorian governesses. Again, not made. That will be a reoccurring theme through this conversation. Um, uh, but it did, it, 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 it put me out there, and along the way, I, you know, uh, Damien Timmer, who was, um, I think, a, a, was in sort of script executive yeah. exec then, was came in and had read it, and he said, "I'm just, I'm producing this new show, Peak Practice. Do you want to write on it?" And it mm-hmm. was a, it was a, it was a Derbyshire set medical drama set yeah. in a GP practice, yeah. and so I, I did a couple of episodes of that, which was a real learning curve because I learned how to construct script. And what do you right when you're doing that? Because I've never done work on a telly series. I'm, but I'm really yeah. interested in yeah. what you know when you get that job. Is there like the Bible where they say, right, go and write as an episode in which this happens? Yeah. Or if you do, you get to to create the action or what happens? When uh, no, you get they do, like well. I mean, I think when you do those kind of long running series, they have a very strong formula. So they have an A and a B and a C story, and mm-hmm. the A story can be the central character, and the B story is the secondary character. You know, one for that week, it's Doctor Number Two, yeah. and their dilemma, which is a broken heart, and then number. Story three is probably the self-contained narrative of the week, which is about a boy who's discovered he's got a heart condition. Right. See what I did there? Yeah, very good. Broken heart, very heart good. condition. Nice little parallel going on there. <laughs> That's you know. Very good. You can, uh, yeah, you yeah. Stop, you? No, no, no. I was thinking. Um, so it's sort of that kind of version. I mean, I, I make it sound much easier than it is because, you know, I mean, we can talk about that later. But you know, screenwriting in general, in particular, television writing, is going through an incredibly phenomenal change at the moment, yeah. which is all to do with the new digital age. Um, but at that time, it was a kind of construction, and and I I you know, at the time, um, Damien Timmer and um, now his wife Rebecca, yeah. uh, wh- who was the scriptwriter on it, absolutely held my hand, and I went and sat in a house in Derbyshire, and they taught me how to write, really, wow. how to write a piece of television, and I I really merit that, and also I read Jimmy McGovern's Priest. And Anthony Mangella's Truly Madly Deeply. Mm-hmm. And from those two, I saw how you laid out a script. And that's still right. to this day, when I am stuck on a script, I will pull up another person's screenplay. And I'll, right. you know, so I read screenplays and I read screenplays and now I'm starting to read plays again. Yeah. Because I want to start writing plays again. Yeah. Um, but I read screenplays as a, as a you know, as a, a way to refresh my, my mind and my memory and get new techniques and... I think it's really interesting. I've read writers talk about their refusal to read other people's plays or other oh, people's no, screenplays. It seems really strange to me. Yeah. Because it, it, I can't imagine any other profession. It can be acutely painful because you can you can read stuff and go, I will never be this yeah. good. I mean, I do that regularly with playwriting. I do that all and, the time yeah, with playwriting. I mean, you just want to, you know. But at the same time, I find the good stuff is also in, so invigorating and so inspiring, ultimately. It, it's an opening up of possibilities yeah. that you didn't realise were there no, before. absolutely. As well as the deflation of... Of your realization of your own talent. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and I think most of that is just about acknowledging that because then it, yeah. it's it's like you've exercised it and then you can move on and enjoy somebody else's work. So how long are you working on peak practice? I did. T- I only did two episodes actually, right. um, and then very quickly after that, I came up with a, uh, I want to say a two piece, two times ninety minute um, drama called My Fragile Heart for mm-hmm. Tiger Aspect, uh, which Rowanna Ben. Uh, and Greg Brennan commissioned, and yeah. she, Rowanna Ben, has new Payne's Plan, new Vicky Featherstone very well, yeah. and read my work and said, "Come yeah. in and have you got any ideas to pitch?" And that was a revelation because I, when I went in, I had no idea. 
but I thought, God, I really want to write my own work. I really want to do my own work. I want right. to, and I remember very clearly them saying, what we're looking for is community pieces. And me going, that's extraordinary. I've got a, a community piece. In the meeting? In the meeting. And they went, I mean, what we'd love is an old group of friends. Go, that's extraordinary. I've got a piece about a community who are an old group of friends. <laughs> and, and they said, and you know, something that feels authentic. And I said, that's extraordinary. It's about a community, group of friends set in Stoke-on-Trent, which is where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had organising principle, organising principle, organising. It's set in a toilet factory in Stoke on Trent, a community of people who work in the toilet factory, old friends. Okay, okay. And 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 suddenly I had my organising principle, which is about people's lives who are going down the pan. You know. So it was, tell me what you mean by organising principle. Well, I suppose what I look for is a very simple metaphor to hold the piece. So. Um, so, for example, um, the hour, mm -hmm. or for, uh, let's go back to my stage work. Actually, um, tiny dynamite. Great. You know, what's the play about? It's yeah. about a tiny moment of dynamite. It's Great. about a tiny explosion. It's Great. about an explosion that transforms and changes. What's skinned about? It's about a racist murder that's purely based on the colour of someone's skin, and. At its heart, we unpeel the layers of and the epidermis of this community and these people's lives and, and individuals. And so I suppose I find something very simple. And for me, you know, television is a very hard place to carry themes. It's about plot. It's about narrative. It's, so what you try and do and what I try and do is find quite a strong world and a strong metaphor. And I suppose that's what I'm talking about is a strong metaphor, yeah. my strong organising principles. So my fragile heart was about a community that was absolutely, your heart was there, it was fragile, but ultimately the metaphor of this toilet-making factory yeah. was a very clunky way of saying, these are people who every day make something of, through which we flush shit, and this is about the shit of people's lives. So that sort of became... And was that produced? Yeah, it was produced. Great. Sarah what Lancashire. Like? What was it like to oh, have Oh, it's incredible. And it was amazing to go back to my to, to Stoke-on-Trent, where my mum didn't live any there anymore. You know, she'd moved on to the next theatre. Uh, oh, and uh, she was in pit lockery. And, um, and so it was amazing to go back there. And a couple of people I'd been at school with were extras it turned out and and that was kind of great to go back there and it was for me it was a kind of homage as well to that place which you know had a huge sense of community but had you know through Thatcher's era been ravished and it was about the death of the potteries and it was about factories that were really dying and industry yeah. that was dying and yet a community who still lived there and were still connected and that at the heart of that was a woman who went back to try and understand uh, what happened to someone she knew who had died and realising that she knew that she'd worked out who the killer was and it was amongst, it was someone amongst her community. And and really that was also probably me recognising through doing peak practice that inherently you had to do that kind of compulsive audience pulling thing and so I created a thriller within it. The um, I'm really fascinated when I look at your work, one of the kind of things I was preparing for this um, was the the kind of counterpoint the counterpoint of uh, the nuance of being human against quite political ideas. Mm. You, know, you talk about mm. the economic despair of Stoke on Trent. Mm. You talk uh, and you, you you find it. I, I find it in a lot of your uh, work for stage and uh, and television and film uh, is the counterpoint between a human drama and a kind of political kind of mm. uh, background, which is which is really strong. To no, really I kind of so. do you think of yourself as a political writer? Um. It's funny, isn't it? Because in a weird way, the, the, 
when I was least political was when I did the most political film, which was Iron Lady, actually. Right. But I, what I do think is I think I'm, I look at the political and the personal. Yeah. So something like Tiny Dynamite really is about a couple of things. It's about mental health. Yeah. It's about the fact we don't acknowledge mental health. Yeah. It's about love between two men. So yeah. it's about so so that for me was a very quiet way of doing that. Splendor is a very political play, mm-hmm. which is that most of history behind every strong man there has been a strong woman. Yeah, and it's about woman, yeah. how we choose to personify and hold history. And it's about a woman saying, actually, I'll take responsibility for my husband's yeah. huge, um, uh, uh, you know. Um, human rights crime that he's committed against a country, I will I will stand up and I want my photo taken because I'm a piece of that history. And so I you know, behind it are you know, I think shame was really about the way men treat women, but it's about the huge shame and abuse and state of neglect that is actually behind that. Um and power. Mm-hmm. So I I think most of my work you know, because I was allowed to explore the richness of themes and ideas in theatre uh, it is buried somewhere in my st- in my yeah. screen work as well. What um, which do you enjoy most? When I spoke to you, because we, we did the thing yeah. at the Lyric Hammersmith when Love Song yeah. was on there, and you felt to me at the time quite tentative about your stage work. I uh, still do. I mean, I, I because I don't write many plays anymore. I mean, right. plays are like toothache for me. They they throb and they ache, and I find them incredibly hard to write. And I cannot work out why at the moment. And I'm, but what I do know is that I've had a stage play brewing in me for the last year, and I'm going to finally sit down and write it by the end of this That's year. That's really set exciting. My, yeah, it is. It's exciting for me. I don't know if it's ever going to be exciting for an audience, but but it's exciting. It's it's exciting for me. But it it's it's absolutely become essential that I write it but um so which do I enjoy more I think but I do love screenwriting I what do you love, love about it? I love it because screenwriting is about everything you leave out it's about it's about cutting away and cutting away until there's very little on the page but it tells everything so it's a it's a very slow distillation for me of work and and I'd like to bring that to theatre writing yeah. I mean the yeah. thing about film and television is it can often take such a long time and you have to take so many notes and you have so many layers of notes that inherently that process happens because you're constantly dramaturged all the time you know you have to be able to stand up and you have to choose your fights and your battles and so as a result you have to be very robust about the work it's it's, when i think about our careers Mm. because you know we we were at we were at that same award ceremony with Grey Clue. You know, we started around the same time. I yeah. had a seven-year kind of gestation period like yeah. you did. We've had almost kind of opposite reactions yeah. in terms of our relationship with the media. And I find that tele- that, that element of television work... Really hard. I, I find it impossible. It is really I hard. can't do it. And so I kind of, like, walk away from it. But, but, you, but there must be something that you actually engage with and are excited by. Um, I... I'm excited by it. I I do. I mean, I, it's it's also frustrating. It's also relentless. It's also it, it creates a mechanism of working which I feel like I need to slightly change. So I can write very very quickly now because mm-hmm. I'm constantly having to be reactive. Right. And I think what I'd love to go back to stage is not not do that. I'd like not to have to react to, to anybody else but myself. Yeah, lovely. And I would love to let things fester and brew and and uh, and um. And bring in a new honesty to the work because you know behind my screenplays are, you know, are the great director and the great producer and the great several executives I may have worked with. But you know they have also don't forget to, we really need that line in. Don't, right, can we right, take right. you know? 
but you know, honestly, I feel quite robust and I can take on the fight. I mean, yeah. so I I don't ever feel that compromised within my within right. my television writing. But then, you know, it's a very different system in TV writing as opposed to film writing for a writer. Tell you know? us about the difference. So in TV, TV, you're an exec producer. You know, I don't exec on my film work. Right. I exec on my t- television work, which means that. I go in on every edit. You know, I I'm involved in casting. I'm involved in choices of yep. director. I'm involved. Yep. So I and I and so and I have an overview. In in and I am paid. You know, I think it's very interesting the way you are pay, paid in television. So when you are paid for a script, you get fifty percent on signature. You get twenty five percent on delivery, and then mm-hmm. that last twenty five percent you get when it is finished. Mm-hmm. Um, with the expectation, therefore, that you'll do several drafts. So there is a commitment to stay on it yeah. on both sides because they still owe you 25%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In film writing, you're paid per draft. So you can be cut at any moment. Huh. So you get 50% on delivery and 50, you know, 50% on signature, 50% on delivery. And then, as far as they're concerned, you may not go on to do that polish or that next draft. And uh, how do you reconcile yourself... The uh, you know to be a writer you must have a kind of inner author. Yeah. How do you reconcile yourself with that possibility? Well, that I'm, I feel very lucky. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate because many of those relationships I started out with have now are now in that power base that they are producers and they're they're yeah, commissioners great, and so great. they don't they they give me the freedom to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So you know I don't feel like anybody tells me what to, what, I, what I need to do now. So I go and I go I've got this idea. This is the way I want to do it. And I very very rarely get any opposition other than it's not very good or didn't really feel for that or you know I I don't get the view, the useful voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't feel inhibited in that way. I think in film. I choose there. You know, there are some films that are for the heart, and there are some films that are the money-making jobs. Right. Okay. And those ones can be actually really f- good fun. You know, I'm working on a movie. I've been working on a movie on and off for the last year, which is like nothing I would ever normally write. It's not <laughs> where my heart is, but it, I've had such fun Great. writing it because it's, you know, it's 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 a psychopathic female serial killer film, and <laughs> I would never ever do that. I, you know, that would never be where I put my heart. But as yeah. a result. It doesn't mean I don't put huge care and love for the genre it's in, and and want and care about those characters by the end. How many things are you working on at any given time? I strip right back. You know, I realised that I was incredibly in my personal life. I was a complete monogamist. You know, I've been with somebody for nearly you know seventeen years. Yeah. Whereas I suddenly realised that in my writing life, I was having continual affairs. So I constantly was going, <laughs> "I love you the best. You're amazing. You're amazing." And then I go into another and go, "No, I love you." And I just suddenly couldn't do it anymore. So when I looked at my slate and thought, "I've got fourteen things on here. It's too much." I cut right back. So at the moment I'm working on I've got one series shooting I've got another series which I hope is about to get greenlit and um, I've got a couple of other type TV ideas and a couple of movies so for me it's 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 that's you know I've got I've probably got four or five live things at the moment whereas I used to have three times that amount yeah, yeah, and it yeah. kills me yeah because and, and not that I didn't deliver I delivered but as a result you have no life and you start to feel a bit dirty because you don't feel like you're actually you feel like you're cheating the whole time yeah great yeah the uh, you've written brilliantly, I think, uh, about many things. One of the many things that you've addressed with real clarity and force is the kind of psychological nature, the psychological catastrophe of patriarchy mm. for men and women alike. I mm. think, I think it's mm. entirely dynamite and mm. shame, as mm. you know, for male characters as well as female characters. But as we speak now, it's mm. uh, the middle of October two thousand and seventeen. Mm. I don't know when people are going to be listening mm. to this. Uh, the collapse of the producer Harvey Weinstein mm. seems emblematic of mm. 
uh, patri- of, of the kind of psychopathy and mm. patriarchy in the mm. film industry. Mm. A, a, a strong, important female dramatist in mm. the film and television industry. Uh, how 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 easy is that? Or what's that like? <laughs> Sorry, I, that was not a question. No, that was like a ramble. I, mean, I think the heart of the Weinstein. Uh, how would I describe? What would be the accurate word? The outing of Weinstein <laughs> from that closet he's been in for the last couple of decades um, has been coming for a long time. Yeah, I think that it sent a deadening, depressing reverberation through the industry who held up their hands and have to say unanimously, whilst I don't think any of us knew the extent of and had named what it means to have such a predatory and powerful um, uh, industry giant, so, you know, deplorably um, using that power to manipulate and undermine and um, seriously sexually assault, if not rape, a number of women, Mm -hmm. and rape a number of women. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's endemic, we know now, uh, in every area of life. And I think what's truly depressing about our industry is that it is easier to glamorise, it is easier to turn and look away in many ways because the upside are the beautiful parties and the beautiful life and the beautiful money and so um, (sighs) and somewhere we have uh, not contextualised predators in the same way in that place, we know they exist but they normally have got beautiful Malibu houses and somehow that lessens it. But if you strip someone like Weinstein back and you take away his wealth yeah. and you take away his minions and you take away the world around him, what you've really got is a, you know, is an ap- you know, is the absolute um, front line of, of sexual oppression and um, abuse and sexual and you have a sexual abuser and you have a you, you have a sexual abuser so yeah. ultimately um, what is depressing is that that has is is there but I think what's really important and certainly as a female writer is to empower the generation that I can and you know in the tiny way that I can I think every woman in the industry feels that and the men in this industry mm-hmm. to empower us all to kind of unite and go, that's just unacceptable. And, and and more than unacceptable, let's start to name the dog whistle that is a constant. And let's start to really interrogate the way we speak and the way we... I love the dog whistle image. To just clarify that Well, dog that whistle is bit. something I refer to actually within my creative work. But I think what we're talking about is we can hear... We know that there is, there is something inaudible that is making us prick up our ears and yeah. yet it's not loud enough and it's not audible yet to the human ear. But we know it's there. It's the hum, you know, and so... Yeah. And it's within not only the screenwriting industry, but it's in within the theatre industry. Yeah. You know, the casting couch is, is a... I think the casting couch metaphor we all believed was sort of somehow, you know, in the kind of Betty Boop era <laughs> of the 50s, and yeah. it was in the sort of, uh, you know, the kind of old-school West End, but it's yeah. absolutely prevalent in, and in 21st century 
London. I think the truth is for that... For actors and writers actors, alike? Actors more than writers? or No, for writers alike. Yeah. I think for actors and I think for writers. Yeah. And I think for directors, even young directors coming up, you know, and I think for young producers. I think, yeah. you know, I think, yeah. I think, you know, I think this, the, I think the, the bottom line is that we live in an unequal world and I don't think equality is possible without constant discourse. Great. I don't think men and women will ever be equal without discourse. I think it will always slip and I think power is corrupting. And so from a, from a, from a, writer's point of view I think it's really important that my work starts to reflect that and so all I've ever tried to do really in my work is you know it, it's never been it's become more conscious because I suppose I feel the not so much the right but I've been put in a position where you know people say what do you want to write next and so suddenly I go so could I write a piece for five women? Would that yeah. be okay? Because from my point of view, it's not that I don't want to write for men. I love writing for men. You know, some of the people I love the most are men. Um, and I care about their world. And I think, you know, it's about human, being humanistic and about people inherently. But what I want to do in terms of writing um, for groups of women is what I said before, which is it is about empowering the industry to say groups of women can sell in yeah. film, yeah. they can sell in theatre and more than that, it builds these women's branding and certainly in in screenwriting it's a very political act because if you look at ensembles of men, which we see again in The Hangover or we see again in um, The God, the great films like The Godfather yeah. uh, and we certainly are seeing it in comedy now, mm -hmm. In but the great ensembles of female drama means that that young writer coming through doesn't necessarily... She's not ready to take the lead, but she might be ready to take that second or third part. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. films don't... And film and screen and theatre does not start to embrace ensembles, then it doesn't allow these women to build their brand up. And I mean their brand so the next time you can say, did you see her in that? She was really good. Could right. she be in this? So yeah. that's really important, and it's yeah. really important that we have the female gaze in work, and yeah. I think that's how you fight back, and that's how you say no to that kind of behaviour. But I think the bigger issue about someone like Weinstein is, how did one man have so much power? Yeah. How do studios have so much power? And why is it the patriarchy is still holding them? And it's really important that we get more women in positions of power. You know, women who are at the head of the Oscar Academy Committee mm -hmm. at the moment, fantastic. They mm -hmm. have last year they made an absolute concerted effort to bring more diversity, more gender equality into you know, the academy. The same is happening in BAFTA and it's very important that in those institutions start to hold up their hands and go this is symptomatic of a, uh, a patriarchal system and a patriarchal set of institutions and we have to change those and yeah. we can do it from the bottom up and it has to happen from the top up as well. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, Weinstein got away with it, you know, I've had dinner with Weinstein, I've been to parties with Weinstein, and I've known that stuff. I've known that stuff. I may not have named it in myself, but, you know, we've all known that stuff. But we have just assumed somehow that if it was really bad, it couldn't, you know, he would have been picked up by now. Yeah. And it, it's taken, you know, you hear these statements like, it's taken a series of courageous women to stand up, but we know those, we know those actresses who did stand up early and have been vilified, and you do now look back at their careers and go... Ah, that's what was going on. And certainly, you know, within my own experience, I've had, you know, I've had experiences where that is present, you know, where there is that sort of sexual overtone present, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, but I'm not young and 21 or 22 anymore, and so that's the other position of power that being an old bag can do. You know, you, you, know, you don't get hit upon in the same way, but that doesn't mean you don't experience sexism. Yeah. Um, and what? sexual power. 
we were talking about the representation of women writers in screenwriting before we started recording about mm. what was the figure you said that in the last six well I think I think in 2016 out of the top 250 films only 16% of those were written by women and that was actually quite high yeah. but then having said that you know the London Film Festival this year I think there's been another third extra amount of female directors in amongst yeah. the, those films you know and yeah. so um I, you know there are changes, but it, it slips. You know you get one good year, you get one bad year, you get, one, and that's why it's a constant discourse. It's you know? not wildly better in theatre. No. I mean, you know, the recent report. To my shame, I forget the name of the the writer. Victoria who, Sadler. Thank you very much, Victoria Sadler's recent report, looking at gender representation of new plays on stages, mm. is, is is you know it's shaming to many of the. Yeah, theaters. and I think that's why um, I feel. Uh, very ready and, and it's necessary I write a play now. I really feel like I need to go back. Mainly actually because it, it's going to be quicker to get some of this material out on a yeah. on the stage than it is to get it made in film and it feels like it's pertinent to now. So it's 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 great to get a call in within yourself to go, come on, yeah. don't be lazy, sit down, put yourself out there, you try and be a bit brave. And I don't think I've been brave for a long time. So I think if nothing else, I hope, you know, uh, I heard something very interesting. I, there's that famous quote, I don't know who said it, but it says, all art dies after revolution. And I think <laughs> there's a sort of truth, there's a complacency once you've had the fight. And what the only thing I could say is this is a call to arms. Yeah. And that's an exciting period because great art often comes out of that. And so I don't include myself in this. Don't expect any great art from me. It'll probably be a play, you know, it'll be a two-star play. But... One can persevere and try, yeah. and I think the desire to do that is really important. It's not our, it's not our responsibility to do, to make great art. It's our responsibility is just to go to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and where that's... do you go to work? Tell me about your working day. Tell me where you write. And, and I write. I write. Funnily enough, at the moment I feel very straddled, but at the moment I have a small office in Hornsey Town Hall, which is a beautiful oh. decaying building which actually we shot the air in and when I was uh, I used to write inside my home but I don't yep. anymore and mm -hmm. that's partly because I wanted to separate my work life from my home life I wanted to have a very different space mm -hmm. um, so I go there and my working I mean what I try to do is not the killers are meetings because you may only have one meeting in a day but who knew that was in the middle of Sloan Square and isn't it a great place to shop? Yeah. So um, that can kill a day. So what I do is um, I try and put meetings on one day and then uh, and I try and limit it. And I, you know, I, I, you know, my kids start school at eight thirty, and I've got a fantastic partner who, when he's not acting, which he's at the moment, yeah. but when he's not acting, is absolutely there. And um, I work from. Nine till seven most days. Really. Do you do the school runs? You kind of like. I sometimes, you know, actually, you know, people, you know, the biggest question you're asked as a woman in this yeah. industry is, how do you do the juggle? I don't. Right. I've got a fantastic partner who yeah, does great. the juggle. Yeah. So I have. It's given me, you know, great freedom to write. So I have written. Um, so I work five days a week, and you know, I work at night. I work. The great thing about being a writer is when you've played hooky all, all afternoon, you do you sit down, and I do like writing. I mean, I. It's happening less, but I'm coming back now to writing in the evenings again, which and I really And what do you love. write on? Do you write on a computer? Do you yeah, write I write on hand? a laptop. Yeah. I mean, I, my handwriting is so appalling now. It's almost like I've got some kind of weird muscular, you know, um, what's it word when you diminish? You know, it's, yeah. it's sort of withered. My <laughs> yeah. hands have kind yeah. of withered. So yeah. I've got, like, the writing of a kind of... It's very obscure. It's sort of a kind of... <laughs> and know. are you a planner? I imagine if you're writing for screen, yeah, planning is a fundamental plan. part yeah. of it, I mean, it? I, I think, yeah, I mean, I do, I do very dense less dense treatments than I used to but I do 
quite concise treatments and then I actually write from to script it's very quick for me but then I'll do several several you know I'm known for doing a lot of drafts whereas yeah. with stage writing I'm about to sort of employ a way of working where I'm going to treatment something so I've got a very strong outline okay. and then I'm going to go and try and write the play not in a dissimilar way actually I'm going to try and do it I'm going to I think I've lost my nerve with playwriting and I and I think you know what it is it's because I've not had brilliant reviews you know it's partly I mean, and that's not just that I just I think I also go and see plays and I think god they're so beautifully constructed they're so well worked and and I I you know and my buddies help me construct plays you know the Vicky Featherstones yeah. of this world and the Frantic Assembly and I think I probably need to sit down and do it myself again you know and work out how to structure a play properly so so that's sort of the next thing I really want to try and do. It's the re why are the reviews important to you? We talked about this earlier because we were talking that we were on a couple of shows and talking about the yeah. negotiating the hell of reviews. Why are they? Why does that matter to you? Well, you know, I talk a lot about this with Jake, my partner, who is who always says, "Don't look, come on, be bigger than that." And I think weirdly, I've conquered it in film and television. Actually, yeah. I try, I really work hard not to to look at. Uh, my own reviews because I think you know it, it filters through normally in the ether if, you, if, if you're okay and if yeah. it isn't okay that filters through as well so you know but I do sometimes go back to them but I did you know the last couple of things I did in theatre I try not to look at them but they cripple me they absolutely cripple me and I, and I don't know why I give someone such power but I don't think critics are dummies I think mm -hmm. they're into you know they're often intelligent people but I also think that you know there are always agendas when you write stuff you know For you've sure. had a bad night no you you know you didn't get served at the bar the last thing this person write you ha you hated you know you, yeah. you particularly don't like plays in this area so yeah. you you've also got to counterpoint that with everyone has an agenda and they carry that into the room but and critics now need to they make their money from clicking from clickbait yeah. so yeah, exactly. You exactly. Know, there's not much, uh, not much clickbait in in considered ambiguity. No, I mean, I do think when you read the great reviews, yeah. you know, I, th I I think the critical voice of, of television reviewing in America is really interesting and really, they, there's a breadth to them, you know. And yeah. I, I mean, you know, one of the things I find about hard about um, television reviewing, and you know, I do think there's some great reviews out there. It's not, it's not that, but you know, they now do these episode breakdowns recaps right. and you're right. just like that's almost reviews now it's sort of slightly funny funny recaps of every episode and you huh. do sort of think oh my god that's hard but yeah. I but ultimately I want to be a bigger person yeah I want to be able to, I want to be a bit more immune to them but if I want to put my heart out there it's always hard to do that yeah, so sure. I, it's an intellectual exercise not to care but it's an emotional one to really be able to separate and myself we're, we're sitting at the Royal Court and your and the mistress contract was in Vicky's first season yeah. beautiful Kind of like uh, alliance between the two of you, opening up her yeah. new chapter. Yeah. What what was that experience like? What does this theatre mean for you? I love this. I mean, it was you know I, I have a photo of the Mistress contract by Abby Morgan lit up in lights that I I love and revere. I mean, I, from an early age, I used to see you know I think Great, wow you've moment. made it. I mean, I for know. me, it's like it's I the know. Desert Island Discs moment. You know, you kind. Um, uh, it means a huge amount. It was wonderful to work with Vicky again after such a long period of yeah. not working together. It's amazing to. I think it's the live experience. It's the live. You know, when I say about wanting to write something for yeah. stages, I want that live experience again. I mean, there's nothing like sitting in an audience, watching a play you've written, and and also, I am hugely admiring of the plays I've watched recently in theatre. Right. You know, I've, I'm very excited by a lot of theatre I see at the moment, and. I, I suddenly think, wow, I want to write for these spaces. So, mm. But the Royal Court in particular, you know, it's, 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 you know, you look at the kind of legacy of the directors who've come through here, you know, Ian Rickson, Dominic Cook, mm -hmm. um, now Vicky. 
And it's known for new writing. And the thing that is extraordinary about Vicky is if you are trying to do something brave, if you are trying to do something radical, if you're trying to do something that plays with form. Uh, and that is often the chutzpah and the energy and the enthusiasm of young writers. Then she's the person to come to. And I want to take some of that um, courage and bring it into and, and recapture that and try again in my late 40s, nearly 50 um, <laughs> life, really. Because I think, and I think that's what Vicky does. I think she's a she's a true pioneer in that way and a, and, and a true warrior in that way. We'll really look forward to watching that happen. Abby Morgan, thank you very, thank you very, very much, much indeed. Lovely to talk to you. We do a thing now on this series, which is new, which is producer Anushka has facts and questions. Have you got any facts and questions for uh, Abby? Have you got things? Uh, I have yeah. things. Uh, I felt like Abby was going to say it got sidetracked what the name of that first ever monologue you wrote at Exeter University was. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> I think it was called... I think it was called... Iceberg, because I, I ate a whole iceberg lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> Great. In it. And to clarify, at Exeter University Drama Department, you lot had to go to classes in black karate gi. outfits. Do you, you know they're called gi, actually? I, mean, I think David Eldridge maybe known to one. <laughs> Did he wear a, I think he was definitely wearing a black karate suit, Guys, yeah. this is what gives theatre a bad name. That's yeah, yeah. Really a black karate suit, yeah. Oh, God, it was definitely... There was definitely some 70s throwback that went way into our... <laughs> Way into the uh, late eighties, early early nineties. Yeah, we did, and we worked on a beautiful padded sprung floor. There was a lot of yeah. Very, there was a lot very of good. there was a lot of it was it was very kabuki. Is there photographic evidence of you and David Aldridge? I, I might be P. able to pull something up. David Ald <laughs> David Aldridge, that young whippersnapper, was um, was I think got a few years after me. Right. Um, but yeah, he was he would just yeah, you ask him about the ghee. I hope it's ghee actually is Indian butter, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, yeah. which takes me to my ghee. next question actually yeah. quite nicely. Um, you mentioned that you had to live off your own homemade hummus for a while. Hmm. Does that mean you've perfected a recipe? And if so, what are the ingredients? Well, uh, do you know what? I'm a, I'm still yeah, out about tahini. I'm still out about a bit of tahini. I uh, I do. I don't. I tend to buy it now. I have to be honest. Uh, I won't. I won't name the brand. Um, <laughs> but um, I used to make. Yeah, it was a bit of old chickpea. In yeah. fact, me and Susan Gibbs, my friend who worked in the office of complicity at the time, used to have very sophisticated dinner parties with a lot of <laughs> chickpea hummus uh, with a bit of tahini, a bit of lemon juice, and a bit of olive oil. Oh, oh garlic, go. garlic. That's, yeah, that is that's the hummus, Morgan, uh, yeah. hummus recipe. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. No worries. That was really nice. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.